Hello and welcome back to Pirate Radio. Uh, in this episode, I speak to a gentleman called Paul Nicholson, who is probably best known for designing the Aphex Twin logo, but has done numerous other things in many different avenues, from clothing to brand identity and all everything in between, pretty much. And we discuss uh, his early influences, his time in education, sort of the approach he has to work, um, designing for aliens, uh, and all manner of things, really. But yeah, I um, hope you enjoy. So, um, as I do with every guest on this, um, to begin with, could you give, could you give the people that are maybe listening and don't aren't familiar with your work a bit of a brief rundown as to who you are and what you do? Uh, well, my name's Paul Nicholson. Uh, I studied at Kingston University from 89 to 92. So I've been putting work out since late 91. So whilst I was in my third year, I did manage to, to do graphic design, which is the whole point of going to university. So to be able to do that while still at uni kind of served its purpose. But um, yeah, the first logos I did late 91 were for um electronic music club called Tech... Uh, called knowledge and for apex twin so i had a pretty good uh, introduction to the world of design and it pretty much set a precedent for the rest of my career so for a lot of um my output has been music related so worked with quite a few artists and record labels over the years <clears throat> um when i left university um through my work at knowledge i met uh, a, a guy who was running a garment printing company and was also a designer himself. So um, initially we were going to set up a clothing brand together. But as we worked more and more together, it just made sense to, to go into business. So he managed and ran uh, the print side and, and I focused more on the design side of the company. But obviously with any partnership, um, there was lots of crossover, so he would have a lot of input on the design work. And likewise, I would uh, be involved in the, the print side of the business. So I've had a lot of um, work with fashion labels and uh, music companies and computer games companies, um, taking their IP and creating um, garment designs and merchandise designs for people. So, you know, it's quite cool, uh, especially during the 90s with the boom in the computer games industry. We did a lot of work with people like um, Sony Entertainment <clears throat> and Cygnosis and people like that. So we got to work on games like um, Full Metal Jacket, not Full Metal Jacket. What's it called? Anyway, yeah, 90s games. I'm getting confused because it's a film, isn't it? Full Metal Jacket. Me Metal Gear Solid. Oh, Metal yeah. Gear Solid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, big, big. So, you know, over the years, we went to a few really good Sony launch parties for computer games. So I, I guess the 90s were to computer games or the 70s were to rock. It was all about excess, and very uh, over-the-top parties, huge budgets, um, and lots of drunkenness and debauchery. So, yeah, the Sony parties were always a highlight yeah, it, it's a bit of a shame with the games industry. I think it's kind of not not a lot of games even get produced at this time of year. You know, they had the Game Awards the other night, and it was just kind of like 
we were talking about it at work the other day and people were mentioning that they come out and they'd be like there's a load of different games and it's been a really good year for games but it's like i can't even think of many games that have come out this year that i'm kind of like uh well what's even come out to begin with we we were not so much stung but we were certainly um hit quite badly on two occasions where sony had released hardware but in the run-up to christmas weren't able to produce enough units so what happened was is that there was a big hype for I think we're talking about the PS2 and the the handheld one the PSP. So um, you, you know Sony were getting all excited and telling us to get ready for this you know tsunami of work. And, and then what happened was um, they'd released the consoles, but there just weren't enough units. And because a lot of the games developers were relying on that Christmas boom time, uh, obviously a lot of their two and three million pound investments that had gone into a game kind of fell short. So if you've only got 50,000 PS2s delivered in Europe for Christmas, of that 50,000, if you've got 10 or 20 games out at a time, you can see that um, a, a lot of the games companies were really badly hit up. So Codemasters and Signosis uh, and all of EA games. So it was um, it was bad for us because we'd built up a lot of work and a good relationship with computer games industries. And then that kind of boom time, the, the kind of golden point in time just didn't evolve, didn't happen. So it was a real kick in the balls. Are you a gamer yourself? Do you play many computer games? <laughs> Ironically enough, never. <laughs> you know, uh, when when I was a kid, mum and dad got me and my brother an Atari 1040. So this is pointing at a time and a place on it. Probably 1982. My brother loved it. He 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 is an electronic musician, so I think he loves that whole thing of programming. Well, I think about ten minutes putting in. T- code onto a cassette tape and that was it so um even though even in my 20s and i'd go back home and hook up with my mates from when i was at school and they'd be playing um you you know sega mega drive and playstation games and I, i just was never interested but i've always found the aesthetic and the gaming culture something i'm really interested in so if there ever there's any books on game design, on gaming culture or exhibitions, like there was a really great one that took my son to at the uh, V&A and they had 600 consoles he could play on going right back to the early 70s. So it was great being able to take my, my son there and have him see the sort of, sort of basic games that I remember as a kid. But yeah, I mean, I, I can remember, let me think, it'd be about 83, 84. A friend of mine, Martin, he had um, the Atari 2600 and playing tank battle and ping pong and all those really, really early Atari games. But yeah, never really got into it at all. But then that said as well, I never got into board games. So Monopoly, Yahtzee, anything like that. If mum and dad were like, come on, let's all play games, I'd be like, oh, no, thank you. <laughs> just wasn't wasn't my bag. 
You were, you mentioned sort of your early years. Do you have any um, early memories of what sort of originally got you into sort of graphic design and sort of the art world at all? I think just generally being into drawing. I always enjoyed just drawing. And I think as well as it was the um, use of the imagination. I like creating these imaginary worlds and what have you. There were, um, there were a lot of sci-fi artists during the 60s and 70s, and there was um, books that were put out, people like um, Chris Foss and Jim Burns. So I really got into sci-fi art. So I remember at my secondary school in the library, they had a, um, a book, I think it was called Space Rex, and it was all those kind of airbrush paintings from the 70s of uh, huge star destroyers crashed onto alien worlds. So I think um, sci-fi art was always something that I was really into. But running running alongside that as well is, um, you know, as a kid, um, pre-internet and pre-even television. I mean, I was 14 when Channel 4 came out, so... Um, there wasn't that much on television at all for children. So I got into things like Lego and um, plastic models. So from quite an early age, I was doing, um, you know, scale models, dioramas, all those um, modeling type things. But yeah, um, you know, won a few competitions. So I I think I was always into being creative, but... um, Things like uh, customizing toys. So I'd have a, a 124th scale car and I would uh, paint it up to look like the General Lee from um, the Dukes of Hazard, even though it's completely the wrong car. But, you know, putting the Confederate flag and the zero one on the doors. Um, you mentioned your time at Kingston University when we first, when we first started talking. Um, do you have any fond memories of that time that have maybe molded you into who you are today as a designer? I think um, when I was at university, I, I was I caught the tail end of a much easier time for students. Um, I, I got um, a student grant, so I got three thousand pounds a year from the government to go to university. Um, tuition was free, and this was at a time when I was paying fifty pound a week rent. So my grant check meant that I had no worries about. Um, paying the rent so I could afford to live in London uh, for the full year, not have to go home over the summer holidays and things like that. Also as well as it was a different time in uh, for employment where it was very easy to get part-time work and uh, you had the Sunday uh, market, what would they call it? It's the Sunday trading law. So Shops couldn't open on a Sunday, so I'd got a job at Sainsbury's stacking shelves on the Sunday where you were paid triple pay because it was classed as antisocial hours. So even with the grant, I was getting part-time work and, um, you know, get paying, paying my way through uni. So as opposed to having a, a debt, I left uni with, I think, about three or four grand in the bank, which in 1992 was you know, a decent amount of money, given that rent was 50 quid a week. So, you know, I had in my bank account enough to cover two years' rent in theory. But my um, apart from the, the kind of practicalities, um, 
I think the reason why it made it uh, good is that there wasn't any pressure. There wasn't the financial pressure of this kind of looming debt that I'd have after three years. Um, so it just made for a, a much more enjoyable time. And I think as well is because there was no pressure, I, I think that my approach at university was probably by current standards, a little bit slapdash and laissez-faire because, um, you, you know, I, I very rarely did um, any of the projects or if I did start on them, I'd go off on such tangents that they very rarely had little to do with what the project set out to do. And a lot of the time I would drift into, um, you know, lectures within the fine art department of fashion or architecture just um, <laughs> to, to learn something new or to learn something from a different angle. So I was a little bit of, um, you know, butterfly really in that respect I was all over the shop and you know it was just good fun I mean I had a really good time I came to London um, pretty much with the capital in my focus from about the age 13 14 I knew I wanted to to move to London so even when I was looking for universities I didn't even bother looking at Manchester or Sheffield or Hull or whatever it was definitely London that I was going to go to. And I'd, I'd had this love of electronic music from about the age of 12. So coming down to London just after my 19th birthday, you know, I caught the tail end of Acid House um, and then caught the burgeoning, the start of um, what, was, what, what was at the time techno. I mean, techno its meaning now has changed. I mean, techno was a very broad term for anything electronic and kind of experimental. So um, knowledge, the club that I did the logo for, on any given night, they might be playing anything from ambient music by Rising High all the way through to GABA music from PCP Records. And in in, a, in amongst that all would be warp artists, Richie Horton from Plus Eight, um, Laurie D from Italy. It was a real um, cornucopia of anything electronic. So it was a really small club, about 400 people. And it says a lot about the size of the techno scene at the time that all of those genres of music, that there were possibly five or 600 people in the whole of London that were kind of, uh, tuned into it so it was a really um, great time uh, for myself coming to London because um, everything that I'd been slowly getting more and more into it all kind of exploded I think 88 89 um, so the timing was just spot on right place right time can you remember the first piece of electronic music you listened to uh, very much so. It would be um, Vangelis, Albedo 0.39, which, um, I mean, most people know Vangelis for the Blade Runner soundtrack and Chariots of Fire, which is probably eight or nine years after Albedo 0.39. And uh, Albedo 0.39, I've said that in about two minutes, three times, but the LP was very experimental and kind of space age and you, you know I, I used to have to share a room with my brother 
So we had one of those crappy Amstrad sound systems in, in my bedroom. It was like a hand-me-down from mum and dad. But um, I had like a set of headphones and I would just be playing stuff like that. And it was really through uh, Vangelis that I got into electronic music really quickly. And this was at a time where you go into a record shop and there'd just be like a small section and if I remember rightly, in Harrogate, it was called um, Electronic and Avant-Garde. So everything was in there. So Kraftwerk, Yellow, uh, quite, um, quite again, quite a mixed bag. And whenever I'd get my paper round money, it'd be like, well, how am I going to blow this week's paper round money and just finding um, uh, a, a new LP? And most of the time... Um, it was just, um, yeah, again, pre-internet, you'd have to do your own research. So you started to pick up on certain record labels, certain producers. So, for example, um, Editions EG, they put out, um, it was like a cheap compilation album to promote artists on the label. And that's how I found out about people like Brian Eno and his brother Roger Eno, uh, uh, Penguin Cafe Orchestra. So it, it kind of spun out from there. And um, that then, you, you know, other music would come along like industrial or um, Belgian new beat. So you were constantly on the lookout for, for stuff that was electronic. But then you'd also get uh, a crossover where you'd have stuff that was maybe a little bit more at the rock end of industrial so people like Wiseblood. Um, so again, I think I'd be 16 when I got um, uh, that LP. Um, and then some, you know, scraping fetus off the wheel, the butthole surfers. So <laughs> you, were, you, would, you would just start to find these bands. And then, of course, anyone of my generation will always say John Peel. And John Peel was like music god because... Um, in a life ruled by just kind of mainstream mediocrity, you just had this shining light um, late night on Radio 1. And, um, you know, most of the time, because he's playing indie music and rock music and all kinds of different genres, it's safe to say that on any given hour, there might only be one track you like, but it'd be that track that would introduce you to a new band or a new artist. So, yeah, indispensable, really. Um, you have kind of touched on this in, in bits and pieces, um, but your work has obviously got a very particular style to it. Um, and I was just curious, what are sort of your bigger influences in sort of the visual landscape? Um, and is it sort of a style that you developed to sort of began developing during your time in education? It, it it's, um, it's something where I wouldn't say I, I follow one particular look or, or I, you know, a certain style as such. I think generally speaking, I'm quite interested in a lot of things. So um, if I'm visiting a new city, I'm very much keen to take as many photographs as possible of architecture. So I'm really interested in architecture and I'm sure that that comes into my work. Um, as I mentioned before, like with um, those sci-fi art books, I think science fiction as um, 
stuff that I read and films that I watch plays a big part, I'm sure. Because I do like that whole idea of either alien worlds or otherworldliness or the whole um, imagination that comes with science fiction. The, the, the fact it's set in the future is usually a convenient uh, point in time because then you can break with any kind of social norms and rules that we presently live with. So the future in a lot of cases really is just a convenient point in time. So um, I think that the, the whole kind of science, technology, futurism, uh, modernism, brutalism, these are all things that um, I'm very much into. And, and I'm sure a mix of those things um, results in, in the work that I do. As a general rule, I know people talk about um, stuff that I've done as having a certain um, boldness or timelessness about them. So, yeah, generally the work that I do tends to be have a stronger imprint. So I, um, I, doubt, I doubt you'll see me getting a contract to do uh, ladies' perfume bottles. Um, so, yeah, it, it tends to be reflects a lot of the things I'm into, but I tend to be into things that are very bold, brash, bright colours. And especially like with architecture, I'm very much into concrete and brutalism and the more um, grandeur of, of kind of those architectural projects. When you talk about your work being timeless, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because if your influences are sort of otherworldly, they're not really... They're obviously timeless because they're not referencing a sort of time on earth, are they? They're kind of referencing something that's kind of... Do you get what I'm trying to say? There's no link back to it. It's kind of interesting. Well, well definitely. Um, I, I, I know that a lot of the time at the back of my head, um, it, it's like you've almost got this like little um, post-it note in the back of your head, make it look not of this earth. So uh, wh when I'm working on things, definitely... Um, the thought that this is some kind of sigil or symbol that has been found on the side of a crashed alien craft is is an inspiration. So I, I know when I did the Aphex Twin logo, um, at that time I was also working with American skatewear brand called Anarchic Adjustment. And their, their thing at the time was all UFOs and aliens so you, you see that a lot in early 90s artwork, the kind of grey-faced aliens with black almond eyes, you know, it, it crops up a lot. So that was very much a narcotic shtick. So um, around about that time, I met Richard and he asked what I did and we got chatting um, and I showed him sketchbooks. So he got to see a lot of the work I was doing for an arc adjustment. And really, for Richard, it was just kind of taking that um, sense of creating something otherworldly to its kind of uh, ultimate conclusion. So, you know, a lot of the time, that's what people do pick up on, is that um, kind of not being able to quite play something and that... And that I mean, again, when you talk about inspiration, um, I, I, I take a lot of interest in just general and popular culture. 
So I will read books about current trends in fashion, architecture, uh, car design, aviation. I mean, I, I, I think that this, it's like I was saying before, the sum of all of these interests mean that you'll find something in amongst it all. Um, how, how can I put it? It's a bit like, um, I know like with the humans, we're, we're very good at pattern recognition. So I, I kind of like the idea that I'm inputting all of this raw data and um, the brain will just kind of find some logic that's unique to the sum of all of this information that's gone in there. Yeah, like like almost like like almost producing a piece of electronic music where it is sort of coded. You're almost spitting it out as if it's a code. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say it'd be interesting to see if we do ever come in contact with aliens. If you've got it right, if it they land and they've got the Apex <laughs> Twin logo on the side of a spaceship, it's sort of like ah, I've, <laughs> I knew that. <laughs> you know, I I I think the chance of us meeting an alien that we can even comprehend it is pretty slim. I think the idea of them being um, bags of flesh is um, very slim. Uh, I would have thought that any any species that has um, worked out ways of traveling time and space probably don't exist in our realm or certainly not in a way that we can um, be aware of. So it'll be some form of, it has to be some form of pure energy. Um, so w when people go on about, oh, look, I've seen a spacecraft, I, I mean, it's just, I don't know. I don't know enough, but me, me, if there's wormholes where you can just drop into one point in time and space and appear elsewhere, maybe you would transport a physical being. But I I, I think more and more a lot of the, the, the people are, looking at quantum physics and space travel a lot of the current thinking seems to be that it won't be a physical being that is transported across the universe i was gonna i was gonna ask just as a side note and, and might have been gone down a tangent i was just gonna say do you believe in aliens but you've kind of answered that haven't you in a way i think um i, I do enjoy uh brian cox because I, I do love the way that he he reduces things down uh, into very um, easily um, understood ways, but it's it's just when you think of the the sheer scale of the universe, um, there has been other life. But you take our current epoch. I mean, human beings um, in in its modern format is at a push, a hundred thousand years old. But the universe is, well, uh, current thinking is, I think, 13.8 billion. But there's even talk now that the universe may be twice as old. So let, let's go for a conservative 25 billion years. Um, how many times have civilizations like ours risen and gone into self-destruction? Um, I mean... I think there's a very good chance we will destroy ourselves before we have technology even to reach the edge of the solar system, let alone uh, cross a galaxy. And you kind of think, well, the, the, the kind of folly and stupidity of humanity, I mean, that could have been replicated billions of times throughout the universe where, you know, life has developed intelligence and then developed weapons and then blown itself up. 
So, yeah, I, and like like our own species, I mean, we don't really dedicate that much of our time and money to traveling the cosmos. So why should any other intelligence? <laughs> it, it seems a bit yeah, um, naive true. to think that um, a, a being is going to expend huge amounts of energy just to watch a bunch of uh, ape ape descendants <laughs> throwing throwing rockets at each other. Yeah, yeah. There was a theory that we, I read. We would make a pretty we'd make a pretty disappointing scientific experiment. <laughs> well, there's, there's two theories I've read years ago. One was that we're sort of a zoo. And they're sort of, they're just staying far enough back and then looking at us. And the other one was that we're just sort of, when you walk past a worm in the street, you don't think twice about it. So it is just that we're too, we're too below them to even there, you know, for them to even come and look at us or anything. Well, I mean, if you think about evolution generally, I mean, evolution is about destruction. Um, one species um, will dominate as another disappears. And you look at the, the universe, a, a star will grow and grow and grow, become a sun and become black holes or red dwarfs or even just simply blow up. I think the very nature of, of the way that universe works is that things will either self-destruct or be destroyed by something bigger and stronger. So it's not surprising that humanity will probably obliterate itself because, yeah, there's a positive, upbeat note for the, for all the listeners. <laughs> Jumping back to Earth, and um, <laughs> you did mention uh, previously that you are interested in clothing. You've always had your own clothing brands and labels and things. Are there any sort of clothing labels that you take interest in in particular or anything of that nature? Um, I think, broadly speaking, um, I'd say that um, military clothing, streetwear, workwear. Uh, yeah, you could say functional clothing is, is pretty much uh, where I, I draw most of my uh, wardrobe from. So, I mean, Carhartt, um, let me think, G-Star, CP Company, uh, Maharishi, acronym, I mean, all of those brands you can see will either have some uh, inspiration from military or workwear or, yeah. And then, you, you know, as a kid, I was into BMX and skateboarding and even now I, I cycle. So a lot of uh, clothing that is functional. So I'm just about to go snowboarding. So I've got myself some like merino wool base layers and, um, you know, waterproof gloves and ski socks. So it's that thing where the sort of clothing I like is usually clothing that, that serves a function or a purpose. And, um, I mean, I, I tend to wear cargo trousers a lot. And for a lot of people, those pockets are just decoration. But I will have stuff stuffed into my pockets and very rarely carry bags. So um, I will use clothing as as its intended purpose, something um, to carry stuff. Do you keep kind of a sketchbook on you as you're going around and just jot things down, just out of curiosity? Not as much as I used to. I, I think um, I think when, when you're younger and everything is um, new and you're very obsessed with um, 
documenting everything. I think it's very much part of the process of, of a creative is in those formative years is that you're kind of discovering yourself, for want of a better term. But um, I think now, um, yeah, I, I'm constantly, constantly recording and, and memorizing things and it, it's all, always there. But um, I think sketching for me is more of a functional thing. So when I've got a project, I do like to start in a sketchbook and just jotting ideas down. Uh, I find that that process of um, mind to hand to pencil to paper is the most free-flowing and intuitive. I think once you, uh, if you try starting a project in Illustrator, which is a vector-based computer program, you can't help but pull down rulers and measure things up and balance everything out. So um, it's not a good place to start creatively because your ideas are being inhibited by the very kind of rigid structural aspect of a vector-based program. So, yeah, start, start pen and paper. And then a lot of the time, even once I, I um, will, will scan an image, I'll drop into Photoshop and I've got like a Wacom tablet. So even then when I'm actually working out um, the vectors, I'm still using a, a pencil, as it were, with the, um, what do they call them? Not pencils. Yeah, the Wacom pen, whatever they call them. But um, I find that you, you just get um, curves and balanced, a balance that you wouldn't necessarily do if you were using rigid geometry. So it's just a bit more, um, yeah, more free-flowing. Um, this is sort of the midpoint bit of the show where I ask all the, all the, uh, the guests the same question. Um, and it's sort of the idea that if you could pick one thing um, throughout your career, which has been really the heartbeat and been sort of the main inspiration for yourself, be it anything you want. It can be a song, movie, book, person, whatever you can think that would be. Um, what would that be for yourself? It kind of goes back to what I said before in so much that um, I'm not really looking for any one thing. Um, I, I would say that the one thing um, that is a source of inspiration is... I don't know if this sounds a bit wanky, but it's like it's it's the it's the the way that my brain works. So it's something that I, I try to um, feed. So by by just allowing things to happen, most of the time when I start a project, um, I don't really know what I'm going to do. So I I, I quite like to maintain a certain level of um, flexibility and in a way uh, naivety by not having a process, by not having uh, an ideal that I'm aspiring to, things can just happen. So, yeah, probably if anything, I, I probably try to engender a, a, a certain amount of chaos and a certain amount of, um, yeah, naivety. Uh, sometimes when you're working with people, you, you kind of think, oh, my God, I hope they don't suss me out. I, I haven't got a clue what I'm doing. But, yeah, it's, it's um, yeah, probably the opposite of uh, having structure. Uh, do, 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 yeah, jumping forward, um, I was reading your AMA on Reddit 
when I wrote these questions originally. And you mentioned that you try and almost, when you go into projects, you do the opposite of what the industry is doing. Um, so I just wanted to know what were your thoughts on sort of the larger design industry as a whole? Um, hmm. I, I, I take a lot of interest and when I become aware of certain trends, my inclination is like, well, I won't go there. So as part of the design process, it's good to be aware of what's going on because these are all things that I will simply not do. If that if that makes sense, it, it's, um, I mean, put really simple, if everybody's doing everything with squares, I'll do it with circles. Um, and, I mean, you, you take the era when I did the Aphex Twin logo. Um, there was a lot of work that I was doing at the time that was very curved, uh, corners, ra everything rounded off. And it was at a time when a lot of work was very linear, very kind of ed uh, sharp edges and rectangles and things like that. But yeah, as far as the industry goes, um, yeah, you, you, you're aware of certain trends. So I'll just try and avoid that. Also, also well, is th th there are certain things you cannot avoid. Um, when people come to you, and want work they've seen stuff you've done and that has inspired them and they want a little piece of that with what they're doing so if somebody comes to me and says oh i really love the solutions logo i love the way that you've created this kind of quite organic shape what have you um you 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 can't suddenly then just go off on a wild tangent because they'll just go well i'm not paying you <laughs> that's bag of knackers so it is that thing, when I get projects like that, I see it as being able to refine and develop on work that I've done on them in the past. I try as much as possible not to replicate, but then obviously when you work in a certain way, people will see your fingerprint, as it were. So just like uh, when, when a musician releases a new EP, you go, ah, yeah, I know who that is. So there's certain things that you can't strip away completely and you can't create something completely new each time because a lot of the time people coming to you are wanting your touch. So there has to be something within what you create that has that essence that people are basically paying you for. Um, so every now and again, I mean, in the case of solutions, um, which are um, St. Petersburg-based fashion kind of art collective. Um, I was pretty much given free reign. So um, over time, as I submitted ideas and uh, Gleb, who, who is Solutions, he would pick certain things out. And it was uh, very much um, something that evolved between two of us. And every now and again, it's quite good that you'll add to your uh, portfolio something that is in a new direction because then that spawns another series of projects where people are drawn to that particular look. So, I mean, obviously not so much now, but there was a time where people go, oh, I really like Aphex Twin logo. So... You you would have people wanting to to work with you 
because they've seen that. And more recently, um, because I've worked in quite different markets as well, it, it's quite good. It's not just musicians. So um, I worked with two um, really big archive sites on Instagram. So there, there's a there's a whole different kind of type of person coming to me having seen that work. So I mean, the way I look at it is every now now and again is to, is to throw in a curveball, add, add into what I do something that is as much as possible a new direction, because the, I see that as spawning a new generation of work, and also as well is because. Um, as I say, you're able to refine and develop a particular way of working by putting something new into the mix. It gives me a whole kind of new project over a couple of years. Hello. Um, so this one's a bit of a weird one. What has happened is um, the audio recording for this podcast at the end kind of broke and I've lost sort of the final... Um, I want to say about 20-30% of it so all of the, the last questions after this um, I just sort of lost in the internet I think um, so what I've done is I've spoken to Paul over sort of the new year and Christmas and um, we're going to do another call at some point just to go through the last ones again what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and write some new questions so I don't ask him the same questions so basically this is part one we're going to do another one at some point um, have another discussion and that'll be part two when that'll be I don't know but Paul has said he, he's fine with it and we'll do it at some point so I'll have to just kind of organise the questions and things but yeah bit of a bummer but I think it's just lost forever I'd, I've been trying to decipher it back together and things and I just can't I just can't find the audio so bloody internet Um, yeah so yeah thank you for listening to this part Um, hopefully you come out and listen to part two if you don't, that's understandable. <laughs> um, um, yeah, cheers for listening, I guess. See you next time. <laughs>